The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love comedy movies and Hollywood satire, you're going to want to listen to a brand new podcast called Get It to Dutch. In Get It to Dutch, we play three aspiring screenwriters on a quest to get a script to big-time Hollywood producer Dutch Huxley. Each week on the podcast, we perform a movie script right before your ears. It's like going to a movie with your eyes closed. And we have amazing guest stars, including Tim Robinson, Rob Hubel, Lily Sullivan, Jamie Moyer, and Weird Al Yankovic. Listen to Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey starting May 9th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Creed Bratton, and I played Creed Bratton on The Office. (laughs) It's so amazing. so amazing. None of those have been funny before. Hello, everyone. This is The Office Deep Dive, and I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Today, I am pleased to present to you America's favorite weirdo, Creed Bratton. Uh, I know the Dos Equis guy thinks that he is, but Creed truly may be the most interesting man on earth. Seriously, if you don't know Creed's story, oh, Buckle up, folks. Creed was a professional musician before The Office, like a legit toured with the doors musician. And of course, he is still a musician to this day. <laughs> Though, as far as I know, he's no longer doing cocaine with Jim Morrison. But more on that shortly. Needless to say, <laughs> every time I get to see Creed is a is a total delight. In fact, the night before this interview you're about to hear, Creed invited myself, uh, Angela Kinsey, Rain Wilson, and others to participate in a benefit concert that he was giving for uh, the wildfires that were ravaging Australia at the time. And let me tell you, I'm sure I was terrible, but Creed was awesome. It was so amazing. I felt transported back in time as he is playing to an absolute packed house on the Sunset Strip at the Roxy. It was so fun. Anyway, uh, sitting down with Creed for this conversation was strange and wonderful, and I hope that it will be for you as well, both strange and wonderful. And be sure to stay tuned at the end of this episode uh, because I brought Creed back in for a second interview, the first time that's happened, because I wanted to talk to him about his song Bubble and Squeak and why we chose it to be our theme song, the song you're about to hear. So please, welcome to your ears, Mr. Creed Bratton. Bubble and Squeak I love it, bubble and squeak, I know. 
shovel and squeak, I cook it every morning left over from the night before. What's happening, hot stuff? Ugh. My voice is, uh, is done, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys rocked <laughs> rocked out. Thank you, man, for coming in. It was a good cut. The people loved it. You can see yeah. they absolutely loved it. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Here we go. Man, this yeah, is my... Like yeah, I, I do. The guy on your left is your volume. All right. Thank you, sir. Do, 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 do. One, two, one, two. Hello, hello, hello. He's going to start singing, you guys. Uh, there we are. Hi. Hello, Brian. Hey, hey buddy. buddy. How are I'm you? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Um, that was very fun last night. It was great. Thank you so much for coming. Man. Yes. Well, you know, anything for the animals or for you. Indeed. And for right, right back at you. Via yeah. V, as I was saying. Yeah. So it's been so amazingly fun just talking to people. Um. You had Greg, so many you had people. Greg for four hours, you said. I had Greg for four hours. Wow. But it has come to our attention that he talks really slow. <laughs> so I think it's more like an hour and 45 minutes. It's where there's a train passing through. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, he's smarter than all of us well, combined. I, without a yeah. doubt. Without a doubt. Yes. Okay. So I want to I take you back, back. Okay. Back. You started... In music, you started where? Oh, you want to go right back to the Yeah, I want to go back. I wanna, the, no, I want to hear a little bit about this. Nudging at the womb, at the I wanna, wall, yeah. the, the uterus kind exactly. of thing. Yeah, exactly. All back there. Sure. Um, okay. Um, born in Los Angeles. Yes. At age of two. If you really want to go back to this, that's in that William part. Charles Schneider. Schneider. William Charles Schneider. Just like it said on the thing when, I, when they had the passport thing. It's all true. All this stuff is true. All this stuff about killing people. I'm sorry to say, is there a statute of limitations on murder? <laughs> there, I think I that's the only thing. That's the only thing there is. No, well, maybe yeah. I shouldn't discuss yeah, that. Yeah, don't then. discuss probably, that. Probably. Wait, um, do you go by William Charles Schneider at all? My no. passport says it. Yeah. Does it really? Oh yeah, yeah. My passport says it. Yeah. Because you've never officially changed your name. Well, it's I my my lawyers and everybody says it's just a hassle. You have to go to court and do it. I've been trying to do it, but they just it's say it's really a lot of hassle. So my passport says William Charles. I fly over to Europe under that in a name. What about your license here? It's Creed Bratton. Yeah, and then it goes it goes back and forth. You know, I've been running from the law for years. You know that. <laughs> well, that's not a joke. That does not surprise me. No, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so was your was your first big year? I mean. Was your first band the Grassroots? No, my goodness gracious. Uh, okay, so my my I was born in L.A. My father died in the war. Okay, moved up to Corscoll, California. By the age of thirteen, I started playing guitar. I mean, I had played trumpet for years, and right. I was first chair all the way through grammar school and high school and stuff like that. And I read music, and then my grandfather uh, Charles. Uh, he played uh, guitar in a country and western band, and my grandmother played drums called the Happy Timers. Then I had a band called the Torques. We played when I was 17. I was working professionally with this band, playing lead guitar, playing all songs from the 50s and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Up in Bass Lake, California. And then I had a band called the Leanders, which means Greek lovers. Okay. And I was in college. Okay. And I and I always played to make money. You know, that's how I got, how I got through school. You know, right. To play guitar. And I was a drama major up at Sacramento State, and I had another band there. But right at the end of college, I went off to Europe. And then I got joined a group called the Young Californians. And that was the band I traveled around for almost two and a half years in Europe, North Africa, the Red Curtain countries, Israel. We worked on a cast a giant shadow movie there with uh, Frank Sinatra. You did? John. Yeah, I did. I, I, I still remember Frank Sinatra coming to me. I was just like an early 20s kid, you know, working on the set. And I had my hand on this board, which I didn't know was going to be exploded with, with uh, squibs and stuff. And he comes over and he said, hey, kid. And he's smoking a cigarette. And he said, kid, you can blow your hand off putting your hand on the thing. And I said, what? And he just he moved me away. It was my only Frank Sinatra moment, you know. <laughs> it's true. He saved your life. He saved my hand. That's No, you know, this yeah. is what well, I, I could. You're right. I could have died. The story is Frank Sinatra saved, saved your life. Yes, you're, you're right. You're, you're good at this right. promo thing. Um, so then, uh, then I got back to Europe a while later and I had a band called the um, 13th Floor. Not to be confused with the Austin band, the 13th Floor Elevator, which was a big band. 
It would have confused me. Well, it confuses most people. Yeah. And we were playing at the London Fog right next to the Whiskey Go-Go, and we'd been playing all over a year, and we had a chance to become the grassroots. First song, Live for the Day, goes right up the charts, and then we're off. That was your first song? That was the first song was Live for Today. And I was I played guitar, Warren Etner played guitar on that. My friend Bobby Ray played bass, and the great uh, session drummer Hal Blaine played drums on it. Wow. Yeah, the Wrecking Crew. And I, we, we used to play with the Wrecking Crew a lot. You know, they'd be hot. They'd just ad hoc kind of things. They'd bring in different people, and we'd play with them. That's one of the reasons I left the band is because we came back from tour about the third album, and they'd cut some tracks without me, you know, and I went, and, and they said, well, this is the way they do it. And I said, well, no, I don't, I don't like this at all because I play. So didn't like right. it. Yeah, that was the deal. Interesting. And so you were with the Grassroots for how long? Uh, four albums from 67, 60, 66 to 70. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, you were the biggest star on the set of The Office before The Office. Uh, well, you were kind of the only star. Well, I would say that about the time we arrived there with Steve Carell on the Forty uh, Year Old Virgin, he that didn't was, start till after we started. Maybe, I think you were maybe, the biggest star. It, well, I, I like I like the thing about you know me. Uh, yes, I I like the way you put putting this on. Are you? Thing, did I, you? <laughs> well, no, but it's true. I it mean, might, you, it might be technically true as far as pop culture. Yeah, you had. I mean, you had lived a rock star life. Oh God, for. Yes. Yeah. For years, yeah. For years. Lucky to be alive, my friend. I remember in a very Creed Bratton way, meaning you and your character on the show, Uh John Krasinski and I talked about this all the time, you walking in and beginning to tell a story and truly going, that story is so outlandish, it can't possibly be true, but maybe it is. And I think you did both. I think you told stories that both- I might have embellished them a bit, Brian. You know me. No, but I know- <laughs> But I don't but have to embellish them much. You don't. But my you, son- You partied but, with Jim Morrison? Of course, yeah. The Doors, my, John Densmore, the drummer, was my best man at my wedding. I hung out with that band all the time. We toured together. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I mean, that's all real. I mean, that's, that's all real. Yeah, yeah. It's all real. So you, you become an actor and you- um, Studied uh, with the Meisner method with Charles Conrad. I did a bunch of stuff before the office. People just think that that was my first thing, but I, if you look on IMDb, I'd done a bunch of stuff. Right, right. Quincy's and Eight is Enough and a bunch of TV movies and things. You know, John uh, Crosby, the, the, the famous uh, agent, saw me at the Odyssey Theater and I'd done a play with Bo Bridges, you know. And I had my hair, you know, and it was kind of, kind, of, kind of attractive, you know, and very, very confident. So he signed me up, and I didn't have to go out or anything. He just said, you got a job over here. Back in those days, they would just say, you got a job over here, and I was just working for a couple of years Wow, with him. And then immediately prior to the office, you were working with Ken Quapas, right? On, I, I met Ken on uh, Bernie Mac show. He came on the show, and he was a big grassroots fan, so he sent out to Amoeba Records for me to sign some albums for him. And I found he was like an encyclopedia of pop knowledge. Really? He, oh, Ken knows all that stuff. He does. He does. And I reel it off. He's, a, he's such a sweetheart. We know. We love Ken. So I heard from Joe that he was directing uh, The Office in American Workplace. And I went, I love the Ricky Gervais thing. So I did something I've never, ever done before, Brian. I called. He gave me his number. I called the director up. And he, was, he wasn't that startled. I went, oh. I said, look, I just heard you were doing the show I love the Ricky Gervais show so much. I said, is there any way I could come and read for something over there? And he went, you know what? I said, We're, let me talk to Greg. He calls me back. He said, I told him you were a very interesting guy. And he said, I think, I think he said, he said, well, if he's that interesting, let's see if we can work him into the mix. His words were, work him into the mix. So there I am, you know, in the background at the desk, the first season and I read right away, I felt very comfortable with everybody, you know? So when I saw what I had to do, I wrote a scene. I wrote a bunch of talking heads and shot about an hour's worth of stuff, ad-libbed a bunch of stuff, wrote all this crazy stuff, and cut it down to about five or seven, about seven minutes or so, gave it to Greg. You did this yourself? Yeah, yeah. I did it all myself. Did it all myself. Okay, no, wait. All right, wait. Jesus this is true. Christ. Hold on. <laughs> so you're in, you're... You're in the, in back, the back, in yeah. the background, you're in the background. Season one, yep, right. But you're like, I, I, I want to be part. part. I want to play with yeah, these. people. I want to play with these people. Exactly. So you 
when when we're done with those first six episodes, you put together essentially a a reel for yourself. I did, yeah, and submitted it. Now the thing is, what what gave me the impetus was on Diversity Day. I don't. Can you remember the name of our first uh, assistant director, the woman? She was with us that first season. Remember her? I do remember I, her, I, but I can't, I can't remember her name right now. So we're now. in diversity day. She comes up to me and Phyllis, and we have the name tags on our foreheads and yep. stuff. And she says, okay, now you guys just start ad-libbing. And Phyllis goes, oh, wait. He's, I said, no, that's okay. And she looks at me, and I just give her the eyes. And she said, all right, fine. It's your, your funeral, you know. <laughs> so we start talking and stuff. And later on, they come back to me and say, Creed, you were talking. And and they asked her, and she says, well, I just thought he was part of the the, the, the group, you know, that's because that's the way I was react, acting. And they, they said, no. So they paid me off the side, but they wouldn't give anything after. I also did the voice for the uh, the elevator, the thing. Yes. I did the voice, and that went over really well. For the coal. The for the coal, coal the coal miner, yeah. Yes. And so they saw that I could that I could do the funny stuff, you know. And so I had two things happening, already kind of like doing some little levity, a little fulcrum, as it, as it were, to right. get, kind of get me, segue me into this thing. And then you're right. I wrote I wrote all this stuff down. He Creed was a psychic. I had a scene where uh, I said, Krasinski comes up behind me, and I'm, I'm in uh, acquisitions. And I just flip a stapler over my shoulder. I already know what he wants. I think it scared the, the cast, scared the crew. I like be- scaring people, I said. And this was the guy, you know. And then, of course, they took it. They took it far beyond I could ever. I could ever think of what, right. how crazy he would be. But they still incorporated a lot of the weird stuff that I because I would tell them about rock and roll stories, you know, and the crazy stuff I'd done. Yes. So you submit this tape to Greg. You give it to Greg. Greg Daniels, and and I think I gave it to maybe it was it was Greg or Ken Ken Subornak. Okay. And uh, before I know it. They throw a six and a half page scene on my desk and say, okay, here's your big chance with Steve Carell. Make it or break it. The Halloween episode. Halloween episode. And then that was it, man. Awesome. I I told the story before when they came in. I had had this thing memorized backwards and forwards. Absolutely memorized. And I could, in the middle of the night, I could go, back in my head. Anywhere I wanted, I could go in on on that scene and know it. Right away, naturally, you know how it goes, Brian. Yeah. They come and say, okay, well, we've changed the thing around. It's going to be in this order here. And we've changed, add some new stuff. And Steve goes, yeah, fine. I'll just glance it over. Hope, flop, sweat. <laughs> I, go, I, I go outside, I'm shaking. I'm absolutely shaking. I said, okay, look, I've come this far. I'm just going to wing it, you know? So a lot of that stuff, that, 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 that stuff, a lot of that stuff is improv too, you know? It just worked. It just worked. I was, I was fighting for my life. Wow. Yep. <laughs> that is amazing. That is amazing. And and from then on, I am a, um, a guest star. But right away, uh, I heard talk when I talked to Greg. He said once he heard me do which one, Pam, and someone making soup. He knew. He said I, he knew that that time that was it. And then that just you know, yeah, it was off and running. And lucky us, yeah, lucky me to get to play with you guys. And and you said you were a fan of the British version. Oh God, yes. So I'd, you'd watch. Them. I'd watched them all. And, and I thought it was the best. I remember the first uh, time on that old place where we were shooting there over in Los Col- Angeles. Yeah, Culver uh, City. In Culver, Culver Studios. Culver Studios. And Greg said, look, we're going to try to do this thing. We're going to have a laugh track. We're going to have a lot of incom- uncomfortable pauses, you know. And I looked around everybody and everyone was nodding, you know, sage-like. Like we all right. knew it was cool. We didn't know if it was going to work or not. Yeah. <laughs> and it did. It's interesting now that I'm thinking about it because- you know, I don't think I was aware until today, like how actively you were trying to get in. I oh, did not oh, know no, that, I knew, that diversity I spot. knew, and I didn't know, obviously I couldn't know the show was going to be that show. I just knew that my little voice was saying, this feels right. This is what you want to be a part of. And besides, I was very comfortable with everyone, yeah. you know? We all laughed. We enjoyed each other's company. I mean, I certainly did. I know that I'd get feedback from everybody. So I said, you know what? I, I think I could just be very, very happy here. So yeah. I did everything I could. I worked hard. I don't think I've ever uh, ever shot a thing like that and submitted it before, you know? And if I'd have told anybody, they would have tried to talk me out of it. You know damn well they would have. You know? Right. Because you just don't do stuff like you that. You don't do that. No, yeah. no. But I, I, I wasn't going to let anybody know my, my Machiavellian plan. <laughs> The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. 
Zen Nicotine Pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen Nicotine Pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge. Simply pick your strength and varieties online and check out. Once your Zen Nicotine Pouches arrive in the mail, enjoy pure nicotine satisfaction at your leisure. After your 10-day trial, let us know what you think. If Zen isn't for you, no hard feelings. It's that simple. Order online at zen.com. That's zyn.com to start your new journey today with the Zen 10 Challenge. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, this is Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey. I'm Mark. I'm Greg. I'm Brendan. And in this new comedy podcast, the three of us play aspiring screenwriters on a quest to get a hit Hollywood script to famous producer Dutch Huxley. Well, I would say one of us is aspiring and the other two are sort of struggling. Which one of us is aspiring? Well, they're going to have to listen to the podcast. Hmm, but I don't know, and I made the podcast. Well, I made the podcast, and I think you guys were along for the ride. Each week, we bring in a script, we read it, and then we give each other notes. And you'll also hear about our adventures navigating the Hollywood uh, system. The show features amazing guests like Tim Robinson, Lily Sullivan, Weird Al Yankovic, and Rob Hubel. And like any great blockbuster, it's filled with heartbreak, adventure, suspense, and just a little tasteful nudity. And some distasteful nudity. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that, guys. Listen to Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey, starting May 9th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married yeah. at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation <laughs> yeah. that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. We create magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When, as you're watching the first episodes unfold, and certainly being a part of it, like you talked about in Diversity Day, but when, when did you feel like we might have something cool? Was it right away? No, no. I, some people say that I didn't. I didn't have a clue, and I knew. Well, right after the first, we knew we were going to thought that possibly we were going to be canceled. We thought we were going to be canceled there, and then he called us back. Um, I guess I think it's one day driving in there to work and I've seen Steve's forty uh, year old virgin right there on uh Woodman. 
right, the poor, poor Sadakoi. And I saw the poster and I went, okay, wow, this is, this is kind of interesting. And uh, I, I think if we'd been on a lot, it would have been different. Been, been, being off in that little uh, microcosm that we were, uh, we, which was great to be by ourselves like that. You know, we didn't, we didn't really, we were in a bubble. We didn't really see it. I, I think it probably took, to, took me maybe to the end of the second season or the third season to realize, wait a second, you know, this looks like this could be uh, something serious, you know. Right. Yeah. But you, but you said before, like in terms of not necessarily becoming a hit. No. But that we were doing something cool. Yeah, we, we're doing good work. And I know I laugh because I watch shows all the time and most of the stuff doesn't make me laugh. But I see, and I knew what these shows were and I would still laugh. So I say, well, if I'm laughing and I already know what's happening, then it's got to be pretty good. Right. That's, that's the uh, criteria. Yeah. Right. What do you think that it did for the show? Right. So The Office comes out of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like the Friends era. Yeah. People were expected to look a certain way on television. Um, what do you think that that did for us? That that Allison Jones and Ken and Greg that that they cast people who didn't necessarily look like primetime TV stars. I think that was the genius of it. I think it was the beauty of it because people, the average Joe, can could could relate to it, you know. And I mean, the average Joe, not in a deprecating way at all, just your the basic person on the street. They're not glamour pusses, you know. Not everybody is a glamour puss, you know. Right. These are average people. And as you know, a lot of people um, thought it was a documentary, and they really didn't know it was a show for a while. Yeah. Which, which is that's brilliant if that happens. Yeah, that it's really not about the way the characters looked, but it was the specific way that the characters were written, the specific traits that they had um, that I think made people respond to it. Right. I think everybody uh, is trying to find lightning in a bottle. And they're they're trying to to say how did how did this happen how did this thing become or the zeitgeist what well it's the synergy between us as as a cast the writers the directors the crew and when you throw it all together you're tr- you're trying to go okay where is this little spark that makes it work it's it's up in the it's up in the you know it's like I'm, Creed's now blowing with his fingers, this effervescent, no, I don't know what it is thing. <laughs> right. But we'll know. But it's, it's, it is. It was magic. It was a little bit of magic. Yeah. And I, I, I think the writing was so brilliant, you know. I don't know about you, but I get scripts all the time sent to me to, you know, to try to do that car- Creed character again. And I look at it, and it's not, not anywhere near those writers. The writers we had, come on. The, the writers are so important. So important. We just had to be ourselves and, in character, and then say say the lines without adding anything to it, and it worked. They they saw the big picture. Yeah, there was something about the construction of the writing staff and the actors and the crew and really everyone involved that everybody cared. Yes, yes, that was it. They, that, we cared. Yeah, that that there wasn't. It wasn't about. So often it's about self-promotion or about, you know, well, if I do this, then this will get me to this other show or, you know, I want people to see that I can do this or that or whatever. But I felt like really at, at its core, the people on this show were just trying to make a really good show. Yes, I, 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 I totally agree. When we were there on the set in those days, it was all about just that was the office. And everybody there was part of the office, the crew and the cast and the writers. And I think and you, you, we've all mentioned this before, having the writers in the, in the cast and having them take their ear on the street and then going back to the writer's room. And then that's, that parlayed into that brilliance too. Yeah. Well, you talked before about you telling stories. About- yes, yes. And they'd hear, and they'd come around and pick my brain sometimes, you know. Um, I think I told the story about uh, Live for Today with the Grassroot Hits. There was one of the lines in uh, in Live for Today was, "Baby, I need to feel you inside of me. I need to feel you deep inside of me." Billboard magazine came out with an article and said, regarding the uh, <clears throat> the band uh, the Grassroots and uh, the hit song "Live for Today," we assume that the Grassroots are a heterosexual band, and we went, "What?" We were freaking out. 
Because we're all from, you know, uh, Warren and I had been, the rhythm guitar and I had been to Europe in college. The other two had never been out of California, I don't think. Right. So they were freaking out. And I was saying, chill, chill, it's okay, relax. And I said, but I had this, seriously, after that article for a year, I had this reoccurring dream. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night and all my ex-girlfriends were coming at me in a circle, angry, naked, with strap-ons. And I'd wake up in a cold sweat a cold sweat and a little titillated too, I got to say. But, but I told that story to thing. And then of course they did the, uh, the, the gay witch hunt story. <laughs> uh, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> I don't know how much of that is true. Yeah. I don't know how much of that. Is, you don't know either. <laughs> the one I always know it is true though. That's true. Yeah. 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 Of course. Yes. <laughs> so I remember, mm. I remember just, I mean, I think this is one you used a lot, but the one that I always tell was <laughs> us in the conference room one day. This is really early on. And um, I don't even know if we can use this or not, but I'm going to at least tell you now. Okay, sure. I remember you, something happened and you go, yeah, yeah. That reminds me of snorting cocaine off a. Of, Hooker's ass at the Playboy Mansion with Jim Morrison. <laughs> no, it's it probably your paraphrasing. And us yeah, looking yeah. around, going, yeah. "Wait, what did he just say?" <laughs> so many words together <laughs> that sounds it's wrong, totally wrong. Really, yeah. And, we, and we'll never know. Now you know. we'll never know. That is true. And I certainly don't know anymore. Yeah, being adult as I am. <laughs> so, what combination is the character Creed Bratton? How much of the character of Creed Bratton is you? Well, you've known me long enough to know that that I am not actually. And we used to, and we used to play him up to. I, I wrote him as because I did write the character in the beginning. So he was. Um, think of myself as a as a crack tuning fork. It's a it's a it's filibrating and it's all almost ready to break. And this it's and I I wrote the physical comedy is from Jacques Tati. And the way he he physically walks, the facial expressions are Jack Benny, uh, George Goebel, uh, Bob Newhart, and it's it's uh, in a juxtaposition of all those characters that I loved, and that's that's how my comedy came around. And then I then I so I tried to write a character. Uh, my original premise was that Creed, rock star, had an over overdose. He passed out on a Greyhound bus, ended up in a dumpster in Scranton. And Ed Truck brought him in and gave him a job as in in the store as a salesman in the in the Dunder Mifflin, where he was horrible at. And then they were frightened of him and stuck him over. So that, that was the premise, basically. And so he was just, yeah, he's an extension, obviously an extension of this rock and roll guy. But I mean, I would be worn out if I had to be him all the time because because he, right. he's he's operating on that higher height. He's uh, what's what's something against soup? That kind of he's he's hyped up, you know. Was there something physically you did? In terms of getting yeah, into that character, yeah, yep, so like what, to, what, what what was your? It was almost like uh, getting myself a, a hiccup, a physical hiccup, it's just almost a nervous twitch to be him. Yeah, got and, it. And even and I had and I they thought I was joking sometimes. Say, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. Well, what do you mean you're playing? No, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a I'm a rock guy. I'm a musician. You know, I, I write these soulful songs, and that's that's who I am. You know, I'm more, much more serious and thoughtful than that character. But when I'm in the, behind the desk, I'm uh, there's chicanery involved. There's escaping from the law. There's there's always been one step of somebody in my eyes and just thinking, are they going to find me out? That was always my backstory. Are they going to find me out? So that's when every time I look at anybody, I, the the thing in the back of my mind was, are, are going to see that I'm just faking it here and, and I, I'm cheating them and stealing from them. We were there so much that after a while, you, it becomes ingrained in your behavior, right? And you keep it sometimes in between. When let's say when Creed is leaving the uh, office, oh, sorry, there's been a murder committed here. Uh, oh, I'm Steve. I go, well, I'll be right back. And you see my body, my body head out. That's that's very uh, Jacques Tati, you know. When I was in Europe, I, I watched a lot of those that, that his comedy and i just loved his physical movements you know so i would emulate emulate those i know exactly movements. what you're talking about yeah, that's very yeah, cool yeah yeah because it's funny it's it's half charlie chaplin and half uh jacques tati yeah basically. yeah what was your job in the office uh quality assurance quality 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 assurance which he never did which yeah he never did was there any <laughs> 
she never what he went the one time he didn't he came he came in one time in a year and missed up on something that's when the car two characters were having sex on the right? yeah, yeah in, the, he, in the background and he of the frames uh, debbie brown he finds she's the only one not at work that day and so he blames on her then he collects money at the end and pockets it himself he's such a scum scummy guy <laughs> what what exactly is the job of quality oh i don't fucking know man <laughs> That's the thing. I didn't want to be found out because <laughs> yeah. I didn't do any work. Yeah. Yeah. Just push papers, literally push papers right on the desk. Yeah, you know? I'm not sure Kevin did either. Um, <laughs> he invented the Clevin. Come he, on. Did, he did invent the Clevin. He did that. So that's you have that to live with. Yes. Um, so you talked about season two. You know, the end of season two, um, we win the Emmy. Casino night was our last one. Right? We had yeah. in a casino night. Such a fun episode. We had gotten... You know, shortly before that, after like getting six episodes and two and four and one and three and in season two, you know, we get a full season pickup for season three and we win the Emmy after yeah, season two. Heady stuff. What do you remember about those? I times? never, I always, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a stoic philosophy guy, Brian. And I just, I live in the moment. I don't predict that anything's going to happen. I just do the work as the day comes. And so I didn't look too far ahead. I just... Just tried to be there and be there now, as they say. When we go to the red carpet events in the limos, that was the first time that I felt a little like, and it felt like back in the grassroots days, kind of something and going to a big show or something like that. I thought, okay, I kind of remember this this energy. It's a rush. It's kind of great. Yeah. When did you start getting recognized as being Creed Bratton from The Office? I think about the third season. I was in Trader Joe's and and walking along, and a woman pulled her child away from me. And I and I I was alarmed, but I was kind of pleased that, that my character did that to someone, you know. <laughs> and then she looked apologetic, and I did say to her, "I said I'm just an actor." I said, "I said I'm not." I did say I'm not that guy. And she's like, she just kind of shook her head. She just pulled the head, covered her child's eyes, and moved away. <laughs> and I took it as a compliment. I remember my um, I did this movie years ago, a Peter McDonough film called Mask with. Uh, uh, Eric Stoltz and Samuel yeah. and Cher. I was the ticket taker in that in that movie. Okay. And my daughter was studying at the uh, Performing Academy in, in, in Manhattan. And she went with her friends to see the movie and they, she didn't tell them that I was in it. And when I did my scene with Sam Elliott, you know, yeah, whatever the line was, you know, like that day, all went, what an asshole. And she said, Dad, I was so proud of you. <laughs> and, and I felt really good that they thought it was an asshole. Yes, yes. That's awesome. <laughs> so great. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. Zen nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen nicotine pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge. Simply pick your strength and varieties online and check out. Once your Zen nicotine pouches arrive in the mail, enjoy pure nicotine satisfaction at your leisure. After your 10-day trial, let us know what you think. If Zen isn't for you, no hard feelings. It's that simple. Order online at Zen.com. That's Z-Y-N.com to start your new journey today with the Zen 10 Challenge. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. 
and of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone, this is Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey. I'm Mark. I'm Greg. I'm Brendan. And in this new comedy podcast, the three of us play aspiring screenwriters on a quest to get a hit Hollywood script to famous producer, Dutch Huxley. Well, I would say one of us is aspiring and the other two are sort of struggling. Which one of us is aspiring? Well, they're going to have to listen to the podcast. Hmm. But I don't know, and I made the podcast. Well, I made the podcast, and I think you guys were along for the ride. Each week, we bring in a script, we read it, and then we give each other notes. And you'll also hear about our adventures navigating the Hollywood cesp- uh, system. The show features amazing guests like Tim Robinson, Lily Sullivan, Weird Al Yankovic, and Rob Hubel. And like any great blockbuster, it's filled with heartbreak, adventure, suspense, and just a little tasteful nudity. And some distasteful nudity. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that, guys. Listen to Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey, starting May 9th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You talked about the magic, and and it is unexplainable. It is. Why do you think that the show connects so well with young people? You know, like it's a show about. I actually looked this up. I mean, this is a side story. Uh-huh. Last night, because we did the thing for your birthday. That which, was, and by the way, thank you guys so which, much. It blew my mind. I didn't see it coming. Yes. I didn't which, see it Which, by the way, everyone, it's tomorrow. It's his birthday. Because <laughs> oh. I looked it up because I was like, is it actually today? No, it's tomorrow. And nobody knew. So I looked it up. And this is a very weird story that okay. I'm, I'm saying right. this. Because right. I'm, I'm pretty sure you're yep. the oldest. But I was looking at pretty it. Pretty sure. And going, other than John and Jenna and BJ, I'm the youngest. Like, like you really of, are, of our, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all those guys, and so, but even I, you know, when the show started, I was thirty-one. Oh my god, I thought you were older than that. Yeah, I mean, that's well, you're such a you're a kid. Yeah, you're a little sprout there. Yeah, well, anymore. <laughs> it's been a long time. Um, but my point is, is was that you know we were still like you know early middle age to upper middle aged group of people who worked in an office. And I always thought, oh, well, this, you know, if everyone works in an office or everybody goes to work, like thinking those are the people that it would really appeal to. Not, and not that it doesn't, but it has such a young audience base. Why do you think that is? Oh, man, Brian. I, I, I used to think it was because of the sweetness of the show. And, and there was a heart. There, the show has a heart without a doubt. It's undeniable. And how, how does that happen? I don't know. But I also think, now that in retrospect, um, there's so much anguish. There's only so much vampires blowing up 
and and threats of of all this stuff and the angst, the existential angst of whatever we're experiencing. Now, my God, there's a cartoon the other day where a guy's looking at his dog. He says, I'm so glad you don't have to know what's going on right now. It's kind of that thing. Our show didn't really torture people with with the immediacy of of our demise as a, and so it it relaxes them it relaxes people i think it's one of those shows that relaxes people and they go to it to make themselves feel happy and i think we also came in at a time where uh it doesn't look that dated for an office you know there were cell phones there were computers you know if you go back a little more you don't see that stuff so right. it kind of dates we just came in at that sweet spot i think too and it's and it's it is definitely funny, and people can relate to it. Not even if you're an office or not. The interpersonal relationship of all these people, and who do it so well, you know. Yeah, well, it's I, I have to give credit because I'm not this smart, but I was speaking to um, this woman who's a, a television critic, and she was talking about some of the you know political economic things that are going on in our world, and. You know, it was a show about a small paper company oh. in Scranton, Pennsylvania. But what, what she was talking to me about is those businesses now, they don't exist. No. And there's a nostalgia in a way, like, like who would have thought that would actually be a good job, right? Now, if you're in that industry, you work at Staples or Office Max or Target or Walmart, you know, yeah. like you're working for Superstore, like that television show now, like if that's the progression from the office, it's a big box store that it's has impersonal. no humanity yep. or heart. Yep. I think that's a very interesting idea. Uh-huh. I agree. And if you wanted to work with people and make relationships, you'd want to be at Dunder Mifflin, not an impersonal Staples, you know, because you get lost and you might, it might happen. Right. And people want to kind of we're, we're we need that stuff in our in our lives. We're losing a lot of it, unfortunately. Yeah, like the the concept of the show, the conceit, right, is like, oh, here's a boring, here's a boring <laughs> office job yeah. in a paper company, right? But if you look at the alternative, it's slinging paper at Target. Like that's not that's, no 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 no. This is much better. Yeah, we're a little we're a little. Bias too, though. Well, yeah. No, I know. <laughs> I mean, certainly. Um, when Greg left to go start Parks and Rec, Mike and Greg left. Yeah. And Jen Salata and Paul were there. Did you notice any any change really? Because Greg was still around. Yeah, no, he's around for a while. I think I think it. It took me a while to to feel that uh, there was more of a I don't know a hodgepodgey hodgepodgey feeling. After he left for a while, I don't know. I I, cu- I couldn't even actually put my finger on if there was a cohesive thread that, that was missing. But I think there was to some degree. Maybe it's just my uh, 2020 hindsight that I know that now so that I can, you know, superimpose those feelings over it. But I uh, I kind of felt, uh, I did feel for sure when he came back, the, the ship was righted to it at some degree. Mm. Yeah, I have to say that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a big Greg fan. Obviously, you know, we all are. But you know, why? Well, because he just seemed to always support. He was he had my back, you know, and he'd uh, he'd allow me to play music. He allowed me to play music in the show, which is a huge thing, you know. And he gave me. Uh, I remember one time I was did some ad lib stuff, and I thought maybe I was right in the beginning, and I thought maybe I was usurping my position somewhat. And I came to him and said, "Do you think I should have thrown that thing in there?" He said, "No, no, no. I don't want you to censor yourself, Evercree. Just." Just say it out there. Patted me on the back, and I went, "Okay." This is, he gave me the the carte blanche to continue on being my insane self. <laughs> yeah, sweetness. Yeah, and he's so damn smart. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Um, Steve basically becomes a giant movie star. Yes, in season two. Talk to me a little bit about either any recollections, not even recollections. How was he like to work with? You know, you started that first scene in Halloween. It was six and a half pages with him, right? Well, he was very giving and gracious, you know, and uh, he he allowed me t- uh, the space to to uh, to jump up and just do do stuff, you know, and uh, and he and we just kept going. We just professionally just kept going. It was a long day. We were in that office for a long time, but I had so much respect for him. And later on, I think it was season two, he was doing some scenes. And oh, it was at the end of. 
is that wonderful, wonderful scene where the children come up at, at the end of Halloween yeah. and you see what heart this guy has, you know? And I remember some other scene, you could see it. And I came up to him one day and I told him, I said, you are a really, really good dramatic actor, Steve. And I think he was a little embarrassed and taken because he's shy in a way, you know? Right. He is. And I said, no, really? And he said, I, I think I embarrassed him just a little bit because I had such great respect for the guy. And also, you know, as you know, how hard it is not to laugh when he's doing, when he comes in his prison mic or in the, in the big overweight suit, you know, the thing, it's so hard not Michael, to laugh. Michael Clone. Michael Clone. Yeah. So, so brilliant, you know, just great to watch. And I learned a lot from watching him too. I learned a lot from everybody that came on, just, you know, uh, Spader, when I watched Spader work, I, I was picking his, his nuances and stuff like crazy. I pay very close attention to that stuff, people that I respect. And yeah. watch and file it away for characters for later. Yeah. Yeah. When did you find out that he was leaving? I, uh, basically that scene in there when I say, uh, see you tomorrow, boss, I th thought he was still staying. No, no, we all knew. And yeah. uh, that was hard. That was hard. I, I wasn't sure, you know. I think I probably voiced it with a few people. I said, you know what, I think it might be time to just stop, you know. I really felt that. I thought, you know, without him, how can this, how can it possibly go on? How can it go on? And I would have understood, you know, I really, I'm glad, obviously, we got to go on and uh, obviously the finale uh, redeemed us in a way, I believe that finale just kind of like pulled the thing together. There were some great moments too, but I don't think they, they ever came up to where the stuff with Steve. I just don't think so. Do you? I f am tremendously proud, quite frankly, of the entire ninth season. I feel like it's a little underappreciated in a way. I think that we were continuing to try to find the right formula in terms of who was the boss, but I think the show just started functioning differently. I feel like not a whole lot of shows gets to end on their own terms and, and tell the end of a story that they wanted yeah, to tell. And the yeah. idea of, you know, Greg wanting to finish the story in that way, I felt like he was able to do it. And, yes. and, and I thought, did it very effectively. Uh, well, that was, like I say, I just, that finale was. So, but did you feel at the time that when, when Steve left that you would have been happy uh, saying, okay, let's just call it? No. No, no, you want to continue on, yeah. Personally, I think the show could still be on right now. It would have turned into like ER and people would have left and new people coming in. I'd be dead. Had, My character would be dead. <laughs> you, no, although I don't think Greg would ever let anybody die who was there. I don't know. I, but maybe, maybe. Um, before the finale, did you have a conversation with Greg? Yes, yes. He oh. uh, he called me. Uh, and you know, he'd asked everybody. He said, I want to know what your, your feedback is. How do you think the... Uh, the character Creed should leave. And I told him, uh, I thought of it for a while, and I said, I think this this song of mine, All the Faces, I could be at Poor Richard's playing my guitar. You guys, the cast, all walks in, and I'm singing All the Faces, and uh, the camera comes in on each of you. And he said, I like that idea. That's the last I heard of it until the table read. And then I saw at that time, and I almost cried. I literally did, Brian. I went, oh, my God. I looked around. There was my guitar. I didn't know I was going to sing that song until the table read. That was the first time I heard about it. Really? They kept, they kept it, they kept it just as a surprise. It was emotional. Wait, they, they had your guitar? Or yeah. Was... No, the, the PA went and got my guitar and had it there. And I looked around like this. And I went, oh, and I see reading the script. I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going to sing the song. And what? Greg's letting me sing my song. And I look around. They're, they're, all, they're standing back there smiling. And they got my guitar. They they they'd planned this, you know. Will you play? Will you play a little bit for me? All right. Okay, I gotta turn my phone on just for a second, guys, to uh, tune up this axe. You see, this is the guitar I used actually on the, on the show. This this old Martin and John. Oh, it's a good story. John, we couldn't get the microphone on the thing because in the shot, so Krasinski said he'd hold the the shotgun. He had it under his arm when we were recording. You couldn't hide a mic. I couldn't hide the mic for the guitar itself. And uh, then John said, well, I'll just hold the uh, this shotgun mic under my arm. Because he was the closest. Because he was the closest to me. Yeah. And, so, and he was sitting there talking to, looking over at Pam, but all the time he's holding it right there on the sound hole. Right. Yeah. He's a team player, that boy. We know that. All right, for you.
I saw a friend today, it had been a while And we forgot each other's names But it didn't matter cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you've met how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces in between Angels we can see And all the faces that I know Have that same familiar glow I think I must have known them somewhere once before all the faces that I know And all the faces We see each and every day When we get home at night There's one face we When my mind's absorbed on my private little screen And I'm walking blind through a sea of unknown men I hear a voice reminding there across the street Walks an old forgotten friend And we don't have to say a word It's really better left unsaid Lights through eyes that recognize all the faces I know, all the faces that I know. And all the faces we see each and every day when we get home at night. One face we need And all the faces I see each and every day When I get home at night The face I need When I get home at night You're the only face I so great there we go so great dude <laughs> yeah it it um yeah it gets me every time um we're six years since you sang that song mm -hmm. in the finale right do you feel like the show is bigger now than it was then? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And I can tell because I'm always out on the road playing in front of people. And I started out uh, with, on the show with 285, 300 people. Now it's 800, 1,000 coming to see my show. And they come up to me and they're younger. And the kids that watch the show then are grown up. They turn their younger siblings onto it. They're children. I mean, my God, there's pe young people who were born by that time who've already have seen the show and, and know the show. It's un it's un it's crazy, right? It is. Right. And I don't know how long how long this thing will last, but it seems to me that it just keeps growing. You yeah. know, it went away. Why do you think? <sighs> I think all the stuff we talked about before, the heart, the heart. I just think we should just enjoy it. I mean, try to try to figure out why. I mean, if somebody could figure it out, sure, that would be great. But I don't think you can articulate exactly where where the the magic occurs and how it occurs yeah just accept it and be grateful what are you most thankful for waking up in the mornings <laughs> from your experience on the office um oh my gosh so many things brian so many things you know uh just to to, to find that you can actually get together with a bunch of people in a community effort and and make make a wonderful thing, you know. And get like like you say, without the backbiting, without the egos and stuff like that. For everybody pulling together for a purpose, it's that it's that '60s thing that we grew up. We thought we could change something, you know, and we did. With that show is as a game changer. 
and uh, to find that you, you can work uh, and in a harmonious environment is pretty rewarding stuff. We all got to laugh every day. So it wasn't like work. Yeah. To get to in, be in, that's the thing for me. I get to go to do something that I just enjoy. It's never like work. It's a, it's a blessing. It's an absolute blessing. Yeah. Yeah. It's too bad it had to end. <laughs> but then good things have to, all good things. We grassroots had a song, all good things come to an end. That's true, you know. Creed, we were a family. Without, I think we still are. In, we in still many, are. In many ways, you know. Yeah. Sure. We still are. You can't take that away. It's, it's ingrained in us now. Um, I love you. I love you, man. And uh, thanks for coming in and talking to me. Oh, come on. It was my pleasure. And offering, uh, well, not just your song, but your uh, your, your sense of humor and, <laughs> and thoughtfulness. So, no, thank thanks, you. Buddy. Thank you. Buddy. Thank you. Is this now? Are you recording right now from your home studio? I'm going to turn the recording on right now. Thank you for reminding okay. me. There we go. I'm recording from my home studio. Yes, indeed. You're recording from your home studio. It's so good to talk to you. Um, <laughs> so, when I was putting together this podcast, we started talking about oh, what music, and I was like, well. What if we go to Creed? Like, let's let's look at some of Creed's music, some of his new stuff. And I hear your song, Bubble and Squeak, and I just fall in love with it. Like, I just, I, it was like oh, the man. perfect vibe for me. So where did Bubble and Squeak come from? Where did the inspiration for that come from? Bubble and Squeak, I... Um... Was a year last year or the year before? I, it's been so long now. It seems like we have been held held up, you know, held for ransom in these in our homes. Right. Um, I went to Romania and shot this movie called The Sisters Brothers, and uh, came back and I was spent, spending some time in London, staying at a hotel there, just kind of cruising around. And I this is my one, two, third, third or fourth time there, and I went to have dinner or, or, or lunch or something, and there on the menu it said Bubble and Squeak. And all these years that I've been there, I never had it. I never. I was always curious. So I finally asked the waiter, I said, what does this mean? And they said, oh, it's when you take a bunch of stuff, you know, and you just, from, from lunch or dinner the day before, and next morning you throw it all in a pan and you add some eggs. So I said, well, I do that all the time. And I, and I do. I, I, I keep my uh, right. dinner leftovers. And a lot of people do just toss them in with eggs. It's a great way to have a breakfast that way. So. Um, it's kind of like your show. And I, I commented, I think this, this is kind of like your show because you're taking all these bits and pieces and stuff and you're not really sure what's going to, you hope it's going to turn out great. And you throw, you throw it in the pan and you see what, what's, what's going to happen. Yes. We're taking what everybody said, whatever's left, and we're going to put it in a pan and cook it up and try to deliver something fun and good. Well, Creed, thank you so much for of coming back course. on and talking about the song. Thanks for letting us use thank, Bubble and Sweet. And thank you for you. No, thank you for using it. I, I do appreciate it, my friend. No, you know ab absolutely. I cannot wait for people to hear uh, the rest of Mr. Creed Bratton. So thanks so much, man. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you, Brian. Love okay. you, buddy. Love you too. All right. Bye. Bye. -bye. Well, folks, I don't know about you, but something about that guy just, I don't know, it just tugs at my old heartstrings. He is truly one of a kind, and I am a better person for knowing him. Uh, so thank you so much, Creed, for joining me in the studio, and uh, again, for letting me use your fantastic song that works so perfectly for this podcast. You rock. And thanks to all of you for listening. You rock as well, I guess. And uh, I will see you all right back here next week for another episode of The Office Deep Dive. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Lang Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our producer is Adam Macias. Our associate producer is Emily Carr. 
and our assistant editor is Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton, and the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Get in gear with the Zinn 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love comedy movies and Hollywood satire, you're going to want to listen to a brand new podcast called Get It to Dutch. In Get It to Dutch, we play three aspiring screenwriters on a quest to get a script to big-time Hollywood producer Dutch Huxley. Each week on the podcast, we perform a movie script right before your ears. It's like going to a movie with your eyes closed. And we have amazing guest stars, including Tim Robinson, Rob Hubel, Lily Sullivan, Jamie Moyer, and Weird Al Yankovic. Listen to Get It to Dutch, a screenwriter's journey starting May 9th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.